0: Well, good morning again. Welcome to our convection oven. We are so glad that you could join us for worship this morning, and we do appreciate you coming and, and uh, muscling it out with us today. Uh, we do hope that this will be taken care of in the weeks ahead, uh, so we look forward. Before we get started today, though, it's Father's Day, and so we have brought back by popular demand, the dad joke champion himself, right. Josh Cash. Rocking the shirt.
1: right. <laughs> right. All right. So, this year we thought just do a little bit different, and I was going to do the Bible dad jokes. So, not all the ones you've probably heard, but some other ones, alright? So, first off, it's kind of chronological, and they ended up being pretty much all Old Testament this time. So, at what time of day was Adam created? A little before Eve. <laughs> alright, what is one of the things that Adam and Eve did after they were kicked out? They raised Cain. All right, who's the greatest babysitter mentioned in the Bible? David, because he rocked Goliath to sleep. All right. All right. Hey, Jeremy, I heard you're interested in buying a big boat. Is that right? All right. I I know a guy. All right, two more. I'm almost done, all right? Another Noah one. What animal did Noah find it difficult to play cards with? The cheetah okay all right last one I thought this was pretty good personally what kind of man was Boaz before he got married he was ruthless (laughs) thank you thank you
0: all right well that was something (laughs) so that that was that was the Father's Day present congratulations now, we did try like i I've, I've got to be honest, normally, I feel no pressure for Father's Day because dads are like, eh, whatever, and we did some math, and for most of the for most father day, Father's Day throughout my entire career i've not been at church on father's Day Sunday because that's normally when we're on mission serve or uh, some kind of a camp or something. so this is one of the few father's days that I've been at the church um on father's day, and one of the things that that I mentioned at the last at Mother's Day was that it, there's a lot of pressure with it because there's the expectation, and, and so we did this new thing this year, and we had the flowers, and we had the shirts, so the question has been continuously since then, like, what are you going to have for dads on Father's Day, or the, the, to add the pressure, I'm really excited for what you have for dads on Father's Day. Don't be excited, <laughs> We tried, and we tried, and we looked, and so we came up with a couple of designs, and and I I just, I couldn't pull the trigger uh, for a variety of reasons, like we're in the midst of our Roman series, right, and so it's kind of got this, um, you you know, Americana undertones to it, and so we thought about doing something with like a, a national monument, and so Aaron actually created a graphic for us, and we thought about putting this on a shirt, if we can go to the next slide. So if you don't recognize who that is, that's the Mount Rushmore of First Baptist Pastors. That would be myself, Bruce, Dr. Silver, and Dr. Khan right there. And I thought it was pretty fabulous and funny, but my wife was like, you cannot make a shir- another shirt with your face on it. Um, another meaning I have, in fact, done that before. But that was our first design, and I, I just couldn't get there with it. Although Aaron did an amazing job with the design. So that was our first design. So then Aaron came to me with a second design because we're talking about Abraham uh, this year. And so this is Aaron's second design. Abraham, father of nations, not father of the year. And, and as amazing as that was, uh, just was a little more cartoony than I was looking for. Thank you, Pete. Uh, a little more cartoony than I was looking for. So um, you're welcome. We didn't make you a corny shirt. But we're still, that doesn't mean that I've, I've ruled out the, the idea of it. That, go back to the last one, can you, Doug? The more I look at that, the more I think that would just be a great shirt on, on a grayscale. So that might happen. I make no well, We might take a vote later, but not right now. Um, but there might be a short run of those in the future. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, really, because we need it. <laughs> Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. We thank you for your great love uh, with which you've loved us. Lord, and we thank you for the truth of your word that reminds us of both your righteousness and your gracious compassion. God, we thank you for the book of Romans that so clearly lays out for us the truth of your great love and how far you went to bring about our justification, our redemption, through your own death, through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So God, we pray that you would speak to us now through these moments together. God, that you would encourage our hearts as we consider your great love in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. This is the opening line of what I would say is without question the most famous speech in American history, the Gettysburg Address. When I was a kid, I actually had to memorize uh, the whole speech, Um, but this is the only line that I actually remembered, and even now for safety reasons, to make sure I didn't misquote it, I read it off of my notes. But I remember having to to memorize that, and I remember all classes having to to memorize it because it was so fundamental to, to our development as an American society and nation. In this one sentence, I think, which is the most important of the speech, Lincoln comes in hard with this thesis statement. And in this one sentence, Lincoln encapsulates the essence of what we know as the American experiment. That the founders of this great nation of ours gave their all to bring about a new national ethos. An identity predicated on the bedrock foundation of freedom for, and the equality of all people. Something that we continue to deal with and develop and move forward today. And and I'll be honest with you, I love this line. It comes to my mind often throughout the year and I love the truth that that it communicates. I love this feature of, and, and this ideal of our national identity. Long before Abraham extolled the virtues of freedom and equality of our nature, nation, however, the Apostle Paul pointed to another Abraham who was himself the father of an even greater nation with even more amazing and foundational important, foundationally important principles. And this nation still stands today and all are invited to not only immigrate, but to be adopted into the family of that nation. That's the whole point of this series, and I want to lay that out there for you this morning in case it was unclear for you. The point of this sermon is not to extol the greatness of our American national identity, as amazing that, as that is, but in, to encourage us as followers of Christ to understand that our first loyalty, our first allegiance, our, fir- our fundamental identity should come from our identity in Christ, and members of the family of God and his kingdom above and beyond all else. That, that it's, not, it's, not, it's not Jesus and his kingdom and the American ethos. That it is God's kingdom and everything else. That God's kingdom stands above and beyond everything else. And that our identity is founded and, and derived from our understanding of who Christ is, what he's done and what he's called us to be as his followers. And Paul talks about this, this founder. And, and in, in chapter 4 of Romans, he lays out the foundation of this new nation. And, and he makes clear that it's, it's not just the nation of Israel that becomes a part of this new nation. But that, that God's intention, even back with Abraham, was to open up this new national identity, this new family to all who would believe. So let's look at Romans chapter 4, shall we? Romans chapter 4. And Paul says this. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Quote, "Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness." And David says the same thing when he speaks of this blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before it? It was not after, but before and he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that had by faith he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace. And may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being the things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but for us also, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So we see lots of different things going on here. and Abraham uh, and Paul, excuse me, lays out the, the development of the national identi- identity of, of Israel, the Jewish people. And he makes this um, compare and contrast thing that goes, on, goes along with it, but also makes a clear connection for us to understand in the church age, as the people of God here and now first thing that, that Abraham points out is, Abraham points out is something that we've seen throughout Romans and will continue to see throughout Romans. And that's this, sola fide. Everyone say that with me. Sola fide. Salvation comes by faith alone for everyone. Salvation comes by by faith alone for everyone. It's the foundation of the Reformation that salvation comes through faith alone, not from purchasing indulgences, not from giving to the church, not from coming to church as good and, and important as those things are, giving and coming to church, not through your own works of righteousness, not through clearly living out the commands of the law or for, from some teacher, but, but salvation comes only and always by faith. It's not our own works. No one makes it on their own merits. There's a story that that I heard in a movie that I watched several years ago about two little mice and milk. And it, it goes this way. Two little mice fell into a bucket of cream. They swam around the container searching for a way to escape. But the sides were too slippery and the rim of the bucket too high for them to jump out. The first mouse seeing there was no hope, gave up and drowned. But the second mouse continued to struggle and swim. His arms and legs churned and churned and churned with all of his might. And through his great effort, the cream turned into butter and he jumped out. It's a great story. I mean, if you, if you really are wanting to talk about, about grit and, and stick to and and the need to work hard and to drive and grind and do our best, it is a great story. There's lots of value in it. But brothers and sisters, when we apply it to the faith, when we apply it to our relationship with Jesus Christ, it is downright heresy. It is downright heresy to say that we can work our way into God's good graces. It is utter foolishness to believe that there is any amount of good deeds we can do to earn salvation. The Bible is clear that it's not possible. But is this not fairly on the nose for how we as Americans often think faith and salvation work? In the American mind, salvation often comes through the same way all other good things come. Good old-fashioned effort. You know, the truth is, it's not, it's not a new thing for us. Th- this mindset has been an issue throughout history. In-, in this text, Paul is actually dealing with that mindset as it concerns Abraham himself. Popular belief throughout history, but particularly in the first century and following, was that Abraham was like one of those two mice. That Abraham was, in fact, chosen by God, and then it was through his own righteousness that he became the father of faith. That he earned, after God's choice, his way into this position. That he was declared righteous because he was, in fact, righteous. That God's declaration came as a result of what Abraham had done. Now, Paul here, he he quotes... Genesis 26, 5, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Read with the whole of the Old Testament in view. Read with the whole of the Old Testament in view. It makes sense why they think this. They they anachronistically, meaning out of time, out of order, are taking the law and then applying it back to Abraham. And what they believed by this time, what rabbis taught, is that Abraham, without having ever heard the law, lived out and completely followed the law, thus establishing the veracity thereof. That his faith was found in his faithfulness, not in simple belief. And we actually see this throughout the Mishnah. A teaching, a book that, that, it, that holds the rabbinical teaching of the time. In Kishnah 14.4, in the Mishnah, it says this, And we find that Abraham, our father, had performed the whole law before it was given. For it is written, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Likewise, in the book of Jubilees, it says, For Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord. And well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Now I don't know if you've read much about Abraham, but I invite you to go back and do a brief perusal of Genesis. We've talked about it here at the church in previous days, and, and it doesn't always look so good for Abraham. Abraham was an utter coward, and time his faith was put up against the power of kings and kingdoms, Abraham would run like a scalded dog. And he quickly was saying, how many times did Abraham lie outright to rulers and saying, hey, um, she's just my sister. She's not my wife. Like, even to the point of letting Pharaoh take Sarah into his palace to make her his wife. And Abraham's like, hey, it is what it is, you know. Sorry, Sarah. Got to find me a backup, which Abraham, again, if we look, wasn't against. Everybody remember the story of Hagar? I mean, brother did not live a flawless existence. Even after he followed was called by God, we can look and clearly see that Abraham made mistakes. He was not a perfect man. And if that wasn't enough, we know Paul's opinion on the situation, don't we? If, if you were here last week, we looked, you could flip back to chapter three, and Paul spends a great deal of time laying out the case against all of humanity. It's not positive. Paul, remember, he strings together the truths, that he puts together that string of pearls, and in his string of pearls, he makes it painfully and abundantly clear. He says, no one is righteous. No one does good. Not even one. There's no ambiguity there. There's no ambiguity. There's no way you could take no one and not even one and say, well, maybe the one guy. No chance, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul doesn't leave any ambiguity, no question about the issue. Abe had nothing to brag about. Abraham had nothing to brag about. Because no one makes it on their own merits. Paul's whole point is that faith was the foundational command for Abraham. And if we look at the life of Abraham uh, throughout, and, and particularly early on, all Abram does, all Abraham, Abram at the beginning and then Abraham later, his efforts are all about just obeying God. It, it's just trusting that God, it's not just what he does, but it's the trust that it takes to do that, right? It's not a matter of him going and following God, which, which that's easy enough, right? Abram, hey, come with me, I'm going to take you to a new land, and I'm going to make you a new people. And Abraham just, Abram just goes, okay, and he follows. He doesn't do anything, he just accepts God's invitation. We, we see that throughout the story of Abraham. And Paul lays out some of the things that are important for us to remember. Paul quotes Genesis 15 in verse 3 where God formally establishes his covenant promise with Abraham. And if we go back, if we were to go back and look at the two texts, Abraham does exactly two things in the process when God formally establishes his promise with Abraham. You understand that, that if we go back to the beginning of Abraham's story, God makes the promise to Abraham, but he doesn't make it formal. There's not a contractual obligation, if you will, until we get to chapter 15. And when we get to chapter 15, God makes the covenant with Abraham. And the covenant, the way that was supposed to work is they would cut a bunch of animals in half, and they'd have this bloody trail up the middle, and then the two parties making the promise to one another would state their obligation for the promise, then they would walk through The path of animals together. Right? There's these two people, it's two people. It's a contractual agreement between two individuals or two parties. You know what Abram, Abraham does in the in the process of of the promise that God makes to him? You, You know what he does when God establishes the covenant? Says that Abraham believes God and then he goes to sleep. Abraham believes God. Abraham isn't even awake through the whole process. He believes God, and then he functionally rests in that promise. You know who does all of the heavy lifting and every bit of work for the covenant? God. Only God. Abraham believes God. And my buddy Mike and I were, were working on these sermons together we were talking about. He's like, well, Abram probably cut those, those animals in half before they walked through him." No, he didn't. That man had hundreds of servants and people. He didn't, he didn't cut those animals. That man sat under a shade tree while his servants were cutting those animals in half. Abraham believed God and then rested while God delivered the promise. Which I think is an amazing picture of how it works. That we believe God... And then we rest in the greatness and goodness of God, trusting that he will deliver on what he has declared. That's what we see happen in Abraham. It's an amazing picture of how faith should work. All that was to Abraham's credit was the fact that he trusted that God would do exactly what he said he'd do. Verses 4 through 8, it tells us that it's not about what Abraham did, but what God did. That God justifies the ungodly. That, that, That we're not right, but we're made right by believing, not doing. Through what God does for, in, and through us, not what we do in and of our own strength and power. Brothers and sisters, hear me. We cannot earn salvation. We can't earn salvation. We can't work hard enough. We cannot do enough good. God owes us exactly nothing, but offers us everything if we're willing to trust him. God does the doing. Sola fide. Only faith. Salvation comes by faith through grace alone. It is 100% always and only the gift of God's grace. You hear me? This is yes, this is no. I know it's hot, convection, it. I just want to make sure you're with me because if you don't hear anything else this morning, I want you to hear this. Salvation is a gift of God's grace by faith alone. We don't earn it. Thank you. Second thing. We see Father Abraham. By faith, we become children of a new family and citizens of a new nation. Children of a new family and citizens of a new nation. Now, the order of sequence that we see play out here in Romans chapter 4 is is important. The order of sequence points uh, of Abraham's salvation paints a picture of who is included in the family of faith, or who can be included in the family of faith. Verses 9 through 10, uh, Paul lays out the question. He says, is this blessedness, is this, this promise, is this salvation only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abram's faith was credited to him as righteousness. But under what circumstances was it credited? Or, or Paul says, what's the order that this all happened? Did Abraham do the thing and then he was declared righteous? Or was he declared righteous and then he did the thing? Well, it, if we go back again to Genesis and we were to look at it, we see that in Genesis 15, Abraham believes God. And God credits that faith as righteousness, making the covenant with Abraham at that moment. Right? That's what it says in Genesis 15. You can go back and look look at it later, but I promise you it says it. That Genesis 15, God calls Abraham together. They, They lay out the animals. Abraham believes God, comes out to the promise. God lets Abraham fall asleep. God walks through and makes the promise with Abraham in Genesis 15. In Genesis 17... Two chapters later, Abraham, as a sign of faith and in response to God's command, circumcises himself, his son Ishmael, and everyone else under his authority. According to Hebrew tradition, and there's varying opinions on this, but according to Hebrew tradition, Abraham's circumcision didn't come till 14 to 29 years later. 14 to 29 years later, Abraham had been living as the man of God, this man of faith, for 15 to 30 years before he finally got the sign and seal of obedience. That means that God doing God's thing and what God had been doing happened long before Abraham did anything to show what his faith was other than his actions. We see in verse 10 through 11 then that the sign was a result of faith, not faith a result of the signs. That that Abraham's faith was what the the obedience grew out of. It wasn't that Abraham had to prove his faith and then God said, okay, now you have faith. And we had faith and the obedience and the signs flowed from that. It was a means of reminding Abraham and others of his faith and the assurance of the promises that accompanied it. It was a seal confirming what was already received and bestowed upon him verse 11 and following verse 11 to 12 paul points out that that this sign of faith did nothing to earn salvation and that's important for us to understand today as well as followers of jesus the signs of our faith do nothing to earn our salvation or to add to it they are and have always been acts of obedience that follow abraham is the father of all who believe and follow god in faith I mean, even when we we look at our sign, our symbol, the primary sign, baptism, if, if we look at how that flows out, that we are to believe and then be baptized into the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit and obeying all things otherwise that Christ has commanded us. There's a sequence there that's important. We believe, we accept the salvation that God offers, then we obey subsequent to that. It's not that we are baptized and now we're saved. Now we believe in God's salvation is bestowed upon us by faith. And baptism and everything following are steps of faith to validate, confirming what is true in our hearts by the declaration of God. Abraham is often viewed, if, as we look at thir- verse 13, it says, it, it was not through the power of the law that Abraham and his offering, offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes through faith. Abraham is often viewed as as the great dividing point between righteousness and unrighteous, between Jews and Gentiles, Jews and everyone else. But as one scholar notes, Abraham, through his faith, becomes the great rallying point for all who believe. There is no distinction All who are justified are justified by faith alone. Abraham is the prototype. He's the one that set the standard. There are many people that had faith before Abraham, right? We could look back through Genesis and see many people, but Abraham was the first one that God made the formal covenant with. He he was the one that that stepped into God's resurrection power through his body, through hope that God would bring about new life. We all come to one faith in one God through Jesus Christ, thus making us one family and one kingdom. As the song says, Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Now, Robin offered to come up and do the motions this morning, but it's a little hot, so we're going we're gonna to let her sit it out today. But maybe in the future it'll be coming. Citizenship and familial connection come by faith in God. Now, Paul says something interesting here in verse 14 and 15. He says, "For If those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. What a strange thing to say. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Is, Is Abraham saying that or is Noah, man, all these biblical cares. Is Paul saying that if we don't have the word of God, then we don't do anything wrong? I mean, if that's the case, then it's better for us to not have it. We are setting people up for failure by preaching every Sunday. We should close the book, close the doors, and stop. Because we're setting everyone up for failure. Well, obviously we know that's not the case. That Paul that Paul isn't telling us that, that without the word of God that no one messes up he's already told us that everyone messes up and if we go back to chapter one he says creation itself is enough to convict us of failing to meet God's standards and live in the divine cre- divinely created order Paul isn't saying that there is no sin in the absence of understanding of God's word all transgressions are a form of sin but not all sins are necessarily transgressions why do I say that Because violations of the law, which is what a transgression is, requires a law to transgress. Transgression, by definition, is an act that goes against a law, rule, or code of conduct. Paul is getting into the nitty-gritty of definitions, which is kind of his thing. The, The point that Paul is making, though, is that God's grace is not conditional Because if we can't lose it by failing to follow the law, if we don't gain it by following the law, we can't lose it by violating it. God's salvation came before the law was ever in existence. The promise was made long before the law came around and was received through faith alone. Therefore, as important as it is for us to understand and to live out God's word in response to the faith that we have, it is not what earns our salvation it does not make us any more or less worthy of salvation, because salvation is, and always has been, something that comes by faith alone. Abraham is the father of those who are saved by faith, because he is the first to formally received God's gift of grace in this way. And we could argue, and it would be true, that all who have been saved in all of human history have always been saved by faith through grace. But there is a transition here, a clear clear turning of the page as God lays out the reality of how faith is supposed to work and how faithfulness should follow out of it. Becoming people and children of God is and always has been contingent upon our faith. And Abraham makes that clear, becoming the father of all who have faith. Finally, we see the need for enduring fidelity don't stop believing. We gotta hold on to that faith and constantly believe, even when it's difficult. I love the paradox of this verse coming in to verse 18. It says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. I, I love how that rubs against itself. I mean, it's it's clearly a contradiction. Against all hope. Abraham had no reason to believe, he had no reason for hope, but still he had hope. I mean, this is a word that I think we all could use early and often in our lives, isn't it? That At those times where it seems that there is no light, at at times where it seems there is no no salvation, at times where it seems seems there is no way out, at times where it seems there is no hope, we got to have hope. That's the time to lean in and have even more hope. Because hope, by nature, is unreasonable. It, 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 isn't, it isn't verifiable as far as, as, as knowing that it's going to come out. That's, that's what they say in Hebrews 11, right? That, that we're believing in that which we can't see. And, and we're knowing and trusting that which we cannot know. We're trusting that God will do what God has always done. Not that we will make this come about, but God will be faithful and even though it seems unlikely and or impossible that God will still do what God does. Against all hope, Abraham believed and had hope. Now, what was Abraham having hope about? Well, he was old. He was old. Several years ago, I facilitated FCA. And I was at a local middle school where I did it, and I remember we would do prayer requests at the beginning, right? And so this, this nice little girl was there this one day, and, and she raised her hand during prayer requests, and I was like, yes, what, what can we pray? I need you to pray for my mom. I need you. And she's dead serious. The girl is all somber in her face, and I'm like, oh, this is bad. Well, what's, what's wrong with my mom? Well, it's, it's my mom's birthday, and it's a big one, and she's really struggling with it. And I was like, in my heart, I'm saying, that's, that's not serious. That's dumb. And I was like, but I'm curious, like, this is a middle school girl, you're not that old. It's like, how old is your mom? She's like, I don't think I should say. And I was like, it's it's okay. How how old is your mom? No one's gonna go to her. How old is your mom gonna turn? She's gonna, she's gonna turn 29. <laughs> she's gonna turn 29 this year. And I was like, 29? I was like, that's not that old. I said, I- I'm 35. And she paused and turned her head to the side and said 35 whoa you're super old I said I'm not dead yet kid and she said you're pretty close (laughs) I didn't let her come back to FCA anymore Jesus loves everybody but you a little bit less today I didn't say that but I was insulted you're old you're super old Abraham was deserving of that kind of treatment. As we look at the text, it tells us that, that Abraham was a hun- almost 100 years old, around 100 years old. Paul, Paul does Abraham dirty. Look what it says. Without weakening his faith, Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. He's not kind. He doesn't pull any punches. It's not just that he's old. He's like, brother got one foot in the ground. You know, he's this side of the sod, but barely. It could happen at any moment. He lived a good life. Now, why, why is this such a big deal? Because Abraham is 100 years old. He's got one foot in the ground. His wife hasn't been able to have kids. She couldn't have kids when she was young. And now when she's old, God says, hey, you're going to have a kid." Remember, Sarah, it was laughable to Sarah. But Abraham believed God. What, that at a hundred years old, he going to have kids? Through a lady who, even when she was young, couldn't have kids? That's crazy talk. That's what God says. Now, one of the interesting things to me about Abraham is that Abraham, and, and you've noticed me struggling with the names, Abraham was actually a man of two names. Man had two names. Abr- Abram was his given name, and it means exalted father. It means exalted father. And Abe was anything but that, right? I mean, if you think of names were supposed to carry prophetic significance back in those days. And, and they missed it on that one. Abraham, Abram, uh, exalted father. He was. By this time, he has Ishmael as his only kid, and even that is somewhat shameful because he violated God's promise and went outside of what God had called him to and had the kid, and Ishmael and Hagar continued to cause problems, which they continue to cause today. We still live in the midst of the, this conflict today because of Abraham or Abram going his own way. So Abram means exalted father. Didn't live into that name. So God changes his name to Abraham, which means father of many. Now, scholars will actually tell you that the name means the same thing. That there is no functional difference in the name. That both ways it means that he's an exalted, proud father. So why? Why why does God change his name? Why does God bring about this name changing? Well, by naming Abraham and changing Sarai's name to Sarah, God is taking responsibility for them. God is saying that, that I am responsible for what happens and comes from their lives. That Abraham will only be an exalted father of many through the glory of God in his life. And one of the cool things for me about this is that every utterance of their names from then on, they were reminded of the glory of God that he would bring about his promise through his power. And we see in verse 20 that God's promise didn't give Abraham, Abraham any pause because it was his only hope. This was not just an option. This was the only option. Faith is, again, holding to hope with full confidence in God's power and provision, even when it seems unreasonable. And verse 17 says this we look back, it says, as it's written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is the father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Listen, if God can make the wonderful universe that we see around us out of nothing from the sound of his voice, imagine what he can do with the dust bags of our body as we walk around in faith. If God can create all of this from nothing, And he can do amazing, amazing things through the limited resources of our lives. Though we fall short, we need to remember that God will always be faithful. Our job is to have faith. God's job is to be faithful. Verses 21 through 22 says, Being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. That's Abram's job, right? He's fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he's promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. God credited it to him to righteousness. God makes Abram righteous by his declaration, and God delivers the promise through his own power. All Abraham has to do is believe, trust God, and let God do what God does. Our lives are to be adjusted in response to the promise of God. But those adjustments flow out of our faith in that promise. They don't produce it. Now we know that Abraham's promise pointed to Isaac, who came from basically dead bodies. But it also pointed beyond Isaac to Jesus, who would truly conquer death by coming back to life and providing eternal hope for all who believe. Abraham is the father of faith because he was the first to believe and receive God's power to bring life from death. But he was still but a shadow of the glory that God would ultimately bring about through Jesus. It is through Jesus that the full power of God's promise has been revealed. And the glory of God's eternal faithfulness has been made available by his exceedingly abundantly unreasonable grace. If we look, it says this. The words that was credited to him were written not for him alone. But also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us Who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins, and he was raised to life for our justification. We are justified and declared and made righteous by faith in Christ alone. We were dead in our sins, but God brings life from our death through Jesus Christ. God is enduringly faithful to us. And this should inspire us to live lives of faith with continued loyalty to Him, understanding that our salvation comes by faith alone through the grace of God, and that God continues to make His gracious gifts available to us. May we have faith. May we continue to lean into hope when hope seems unavailable. And may we trust. great God of this universe to do in and through us what only he can do through his power and presence. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. I thank you for your great love with which you have loved us. I thank you for the power and presence that you make available in our lives. Lord, may we lean into the promises of your word and the power of your presence in and through us. God, we hold on to your, tr- your truth, trusting you to do as you say, in Jesus' name, amen.